Miss the show, no problem, on point. And on this podcast, the Prime Minister meeting up with the UK and European leaders where they all admit they have to wean themselves off Russian oil, and yet no one is really doing so. But they need a solution moving forward, yet the Biden administration is looking to sign oil deals with other tyrants in Iran and Venezuela. Why is Canada not being offered as a solution? If we truly want to solve all of these deals with the devils, why is Canada not a part of this conversation? While Putin is murdering thousands of Ukrainians, we learn that the Biden administration is ready to sign a nuclear deal with Iran that Russia is negotiating. Yeah, the same country committing war crimes and threatening a nuclear war uh, with the world is now negotiating a nuclear deal with a terror regime that will in no way punish Putin and very much rewards terror regimes. We will talk about why this is not being talked about. And we'll talk about the cost of war, not just hitting our gas tank. Russia and Ukraine are the world's biggest exporters of wheat and grain, and the world now can't get access to it. So how big will the hit be? When will it be? And can Canadian farmers fill this new void? And we'll also talk about what the next plan is in this fight. Ukraine is begging for this no-fly zone. NATO says they can't do that. But they also have said, look, we can give you fighter jets from one of the NATO regimes, except for none of those regimes have yet to say, hey, here, take our planes. Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson. What Vladimir Putin has broken here is a trust where I've heard a number of Europeans reflect on it's too bad that we are so dependent on Russian oil, but we're not going to make that mistake again, and they are moving away from it. Canada uh, imports negligible amounts of uh, Russian petrochemicals and oil. Uh, we've banned that, uh, but we are, of course, self-sustainable in terms of uh, uh, oil uh, and energy, but uh, we will be there to support as the world moves beyond Russian oil and, indeed, beyond fossil fuels to have more renewables in our mix. NATO allies say no more Russian oil, yet they're looking to other oil tyrants to fill the need. Alex Pearson with you on this Monday, February 7th. Welcome back to a fresh new week, which uh, looks a lot like last week. Hope you had a great weekend. Hope you had a chance to check out. Oh, it's March. What did I say? February? Oh, geez. No, March. I'm in the wrong month. Yeah, there you go. March. Okay, it's March, which looks a lot like February. But there you go. Hope you had a chance to kind of... um check out. Enjoy the uh, spring-like weather that gives us hope, right? It's very hard to do these days, given all that's going on, uh, looking away. And you know the world's changed when Elon Musk states that we need more fossil fuels. Oh yes, he said that. He told his uh, 76 million Twitter followers, quote, hate to say it, but we need to increase oil and gas output immediately. Extraordinary times demand extraordinary measures. Obviously, this would negatively affect Tesla, but sustainable energy solutions simply can't react instantaneously to make up for Russian oil and gas exports, end quote. So that's the message coming from a guy who's devoted his uh, existence to taking fossil-fueled vehicles off the road, but who's parked his ideology because of the crisis at hand and admits what those in charge need to admit, and that is renewables are nowhere close to being an offer to the world as a solution right now. And right now, we need an immediate energy solution. We just do. Look at the gas prices. I don't need to tell you, it's expensive. I used to fill my Mini up for 85 bucks. It's like, I stopped now at like 120. It's crazy. I don't even, I'm just 
and I don't know, I don't drive that much. And it's just going to keep going up because demand for fossil fuels is not going down. But sadly, those in charge never bother to treat energy, as we're learning now, as a security issue. So they're cornered with very few options of, you know, which tyrant will we buy oil from? So this was a, a big theme at a press conference between uh, UK leader Boris Johnson, Dutch leader Mark Lut, and Justin Trudeau, who met today in, um, I guess, Pri uh, Prime Minister Bojo. Mr. Johnson's Downing Street address, and all three leaders agreed that Russian oil must be cut off, but admitted, you know, for all their tough talk of isolating Putin, well, it's just not going to be done quickly. We have to consider how uh, we can all move away uh, as fast as possible uh, from dependence reliance on Russian hydrocarbons, uh, Russian oil and gas. And everybody's doing that. Everybody's uh, on the same journey. Uh, some countries will find it uh, faster and easier than others. That's all. But we're going to do it. Uh, we're going to do, do it together because uh, and we're going to work together on making sure that we all have uh, the substitutes and the supplies that, that we uh, that we need. That was Boris Johnson, who said this is not going to end anytime soon, and we're never going back to normal because normal doesn't exist anymore. So this notion that this will end and it's life back to normal, he said that's not going to happen. And I'd like to think that when Trudeau, you know, is meeting with his NATO allies, that he is parking his ideology on climate and offering up Canada as a very real solution to the immediate emergencies that we're dealing with in energy. Because he pledged his support today, but he didn't give details on what that support would look like for our allies. And, and the bottom line is, look, we have ethical oil, we have natural gas, we have nuclear energy. We have what the world needs, and the prime minister would be smart to make sure our allies know this, but more, that Mr. Putin understands loud and clear, Canada will replace his blood oil. And Johnson said in the coming days he'll be laying out a new energy strategy for the UK to deal with the immediate response and what it's going to look like long term. Germany's already done this. They made very clear energy security is now a priority. And I suspect most of Europe is going to take the same approach given uh, Putin's now hanging a nuclear bomb over their heads. But for all this praise, you know, that NATO leaders are showering on themselves for all these sanctions, if they are truly serious about isolating Putin, they actually have to isolate him. They've got to cut off his oil completely instead of these halfway measures. Otherwise, we're paying for this war. We're helping kill Ukrainians. And they don't seem all that serious. And their actions since this crisis seem to kind of confirm that. Because President Biden, who's still buying Russian oil on a daily basis, well, guess who he's talking to now? He's talking to Venezuela. He's so desperate to get cheap oil, he's willing to team up with, the, you know, the ruthless dictator Maduro, who's accused of crimes against humanity after torturing and killing his own people and starving them to death. But he's also talking to Iran. He'll take their blood oil. Iran, the same country which bombed a plane full of Canadians out of the sky last year. Yeah. He'll go to Venezuela and Iran. Nowhere in the conversations on this energy crisis are we hearing that the U.S. and Canada are working together to build or find a solution for the world. I find it bizarre. Keystone XL, had it not been cancelled, would have supplied more oil to the United States on a daily basis than it gets from Russia. 
That pipeline would have given us energy security across North America and beyond. And yet Biden refuses to reverse the decision. And I don't get the sense that Trudeau will even bother trying to convince him otherwise. Too political. But Ukrainians are being slaughtered by this tyrant. And instead of sending Putin and the rest of his blood buddies a message, Biden and NATO continue to, you know, reward their bad behavior, signing deals with the world's devils, offering up cheap oil. But it doesn't in any way provide us energy security or security moving forward. I mean, so obsessed these leaders and Biden and Trudeau are with their green pipe dreams and protecting their domestic political fortunes that they're still willing to fuel the world's tyrants instead of generating it in North America or in Canada where we have energy that is ethical and reliable. Which is why Putin, who's still getting rich off of his oil sales, is just going to continue to kill Ukrainians with impunity because he knows the world needs what he's got, even if they hate him. They're just going to keep buying it. At the same time telling us, yeah, we're isolating Putin. Well, no, you're not. You know, the bottom line is they've isolated the West with their reckless progressive energy strategies. And now, you know, we are going to pay for it. Actually, no, we're not going to pay for it. Ukrainians are going to pay for it with their lives. Even more troubling is that the Biden administration is about to announce a new Iranian nuclear deal with Russia and Russia's negotiating it. Yeah, the same Russia that's killing and culling Ukrainians has been sitting at a table negotiating with Iran for a new nuclear deal with the U.S. Does that make much sense? This deal is going to give Iran not just the ability to build a nuclear weapon, but it's going to give them billions and billions of dollars. It's not just lunacy. It's not even being talked about it. And this deal is expected to be announced any day now. It is sheer madness. But we will talk about it later in the show because... It makes absolutely no sense. Have we learned nothing? Trudeau, of course, announcing more sanctions against 10 more oligarchs. Still not going after the very powerful oligarchs that will hit Putin the hardest. Um, and so we're going to talk about that a little bit because Ukraine is running out of time. They don't have time for these sanctions to hit. And they're not hitting fast enough. So on the other side of this break, President uh, Zelensky, he gave a speech which had a real shift in tone. And he basically accuses NATO and the West of not doing enough, not helping enough. Great to have you here. So, you know, just when you thought our allies might wake up to the threat that we face from the world's tyrants and our need to maybe distance ourselves from them, President Biden is close to announcing a Russian brokered deal with Iran that will flood the world's leading state sponsor of terror with billions of dollars and allow this terror nation to get back to developing nuclear weapons. And yeah, you heard that right. We're talking about the same Russia now carpet bombing Ukraines, Ukrainians is now negotiating this deal on behalf of America and in favor of Iran. And so the deal is to, I guess, lift all sanctions against Iran and allow them to build a legitimate nuclear program with little to no oversight. And when you lift these sanctions, it'll mean all this money that America is sending will, I guess, directly subsidize the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, Hezbollah, and other terror nations or organizations. In fact, the United States actually might agree to remove Iran's military from the list of foreign terrorist organizations. So if that doesn't make any sense to you, 
then it doesn't make any sense to me. Kabe Sharuz is a senior fellow with McDonald Laurier Institute. He's an adjunct professor with U of T and Harvard Law and a senior foreign policy or a former senior policy advisor on human rights to Global Affairs Canada. Good to have you, Kabe. Good to be with you. So when I read this, I thought, are we nuts? Are they nuts? Am I reading this wrong? What is this deal and and why would they even move forward with it given the current circumstances? No, you're not nuts at all. Uh, The situation is nuts and it's not at all clear what the deal is, but whatever it is, I'm sure it's a bad one. Um, Just earlier this week or a couple of days ago, we had the lead Russian negotiator um, on the nuclear deal uh, record a video and he put it out on Twitter saying that Iran got far more than it could have possibly expected, possibly more than, you know, anything Russia, China or the United States would have expected. So we've got a situation, as you described at the outset, where Russia, which is involved in, you know, carrying out the massacre that we see on our TV screens, that's been isolated in every way, but it's now permitted to negotiate this deal to bring Iran back into the international community so that Iran can get billions of dollars. It's just the whole thing is nuts. So you're not uh, you're not wrong to think that this whole situation is absolutely crazy. Right. And so people, you know, in case they forget, this is this goes back to 2015. This was a, an Iranian nuclear deal that Obama put together and it would let Iran keep enriching uranium. Uh, develop these nuclear-capable missiles and sponsor terrorism in exchange for billions of dollars in U.S. sanction relief. And then Trump comes in, he cancels the deal, and it looks like, you know, Biden is not only just reversing it, but he's even going further. And so where has he gone further? I mean, A, why would Russia be negotiating anything? I mean, that that in itself should have been canceled the second he stepped foot in in, in Ukraine. Uh, but But how has he gone even further? So it's not entirely clear. The text has not been released at the moment. All we can do is guess. But, um, you know, our understanding is that it goes farther than even the 2015 deal. The 2015 deal was a very bad deal for a variety of reasons, including the fact that Iran got billions of dollars in sanctions relief. Um, And it got a deal where, yes, it stopped enriching uranium, but there were all sorts of sunset clauses. So if Iran just waited a few years, it could just wait out the, the nuclear deal and the and the. Um, you know, obligations on Iran will fall away and Iran could actually achieve a nuclear weapon in five to 10 years. Um, Our understanding now, based on the leaks, is that this current deal is even better for Iran. So, you know, it's anybody's guess really how much Iran gets out of it. But this early speculation is that a lot of the sanctions will be um, lifted. A lot of the people and organizations that have been sanctioned, including the Revolutionary Guards and a lot of the top, uh, you know, upper echelons of the Iranian regime, they will be released from sanctions. And Iran will probably, presumably, have a path to a nuclear weapon in the next decade or so. Yeah, I mean, I fail to see, though, how that this is even allowed to go on. Like, I don't under Where is the international outrage? Where are the questions for the president? I mean, I, I heard a, a White House press briefing um, with the press secretary, Jen Psaki, today, and she's talking about, well, we're trying to undo the damage uh, that Mr. Trump did. But I fail to see why the United States, given it is a, a member of NATO, given that we are, you know, the world is essentially under attack by Russia, w- why that this would even be going on and not instantly can canceled like isn't weren't we told that the world has changed that's absolutely true and this is really what's shocking about it is that the world has changed it should have changed and that russia for the most part has really been isolated in every way except in this one respect and the reason for it is that biden's administration is so committed to getting back into the iran deal at any cost at this point that it's willing to kind of ignore its allies it's willing to ignore all that's going on in the world 
it's willing to continue to work with Russia in these circumstances just to bring Iran back into the deal. It's absolutely nuts. And the fact that, uh, you know, the press isn't asking about it, you know, I'm glad you're talking about it. But by and large, this is a story that's been absent from the newspapers um, and from from other media. And so that's, you know, that's a great mystery to me. I don't know why we're not talking about this more. Well, you know, I mean, as long as we're doing any business with Russia, as long as they're at the table on anything, as long as we're buying their oil, as long as uh, Russia has any say anywhere, then it's not being isolated and we're not actually standing with Ukraine. So I fail to see um, how the Biden administration thinks that it's helping the situation when when clearly from the outside looking in, it's just like, okay, we're going to do these quiet side deals while they do that little war thing over in Ukraine. Um, But but you're still empowering Putin. I, I think that's exactly right. You know, the main headline is that Russia has been isolated. But as you say, I mean, there seem to be side deals happening. And, uh, you know, Russia is still very much involved in these negotiations. Interestingly, Russia is actually currently objecting to the fact that, uh, you know, these, these sanctions are going to get in the way of it doing business with Iran. So chances are that in the next day or two, you will hear an announcement from the White House where that particular sanction on Russia may be lifted, allowing Russia to have access to Iranian oil um, and the Iranian market. So it's you know, the story that you hear about Russia being isolated is actually not true once you dig in a little bit deeper. Well, yeah, okay. And so then this is all just a bunch of kabuki theater. Um, because, you know, on the flip side, you know, you've got everyone in, in NATO and our European allies and the Americans saying that, look, we've got to isolate Putin. We're going to put all these sanctions against them. We're going to, you know, uh, try to uh, choke him off and the oligarchs. But that's not actually what's happening because they're still buying Russian oil. And if they end up buying, um, you know, there's a lot of conversations that the United States is going to turn to Iranian oil or Venezuelan oil. Nowhere in the conversation is Canadian oil. Um, but but they're all continually doing deals with the devils of the world, meaning that we're just fueling the threat. That is absolutely true. I'm so glad you brought up this issue. Um, it seems like in the past day or two, the Biden administration has decided to go to every tin pot dictator around the world, you know, be it Iranian oil or, as you mentioned, Venezuela. You know, there's a uh, delegation from the U.S. meeting with the Maduro regime, um, which has been isolated for a couple of years. But, you know, the U.S. is going to be buying Venezuelan oil, presumably, not Canadian oil, not, you know, the, the stuff that comes from a Democratic liberal neighbor. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think that the main story is grossly misleading, talking about Russia being isolated and this being a great moment for democracy. I think, you know, if you read a little bit more carefully, you'll realize that Russia is not quite as isolated as initially thought and that, uh, you know, the U.S. is willing to bend over backwards to accommodate Iran. Very unfortunate. Right. And so then you kind of, you know, there's so many conversations, you know, people wonder why can't Israel get involved and why can't they do anything to stop what's going on and why can't other countries get involved? And it's like as long as these side deals with tyrants are going on, uh, countries like Israel, uh, they got to protect themselves. They're not going to get involved if they think there's going to be a nuclearized, um, you know, uh, Iran. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, uh, it seems like the Israeli prime minister is trying some quiet diplomacy behind the scenes. He seems to be pushing the U.S. administration uh, to maybe take a tougher line on Iran. But by and large, I think they're you know saving their political capital at the moment because, I mean, what's the point of coming out loudly against the deal if the Biden administration seems so committed to it? Um, and if there is a deal with Iran, then it's Israel, you know, America's ally, Canada's ally that ends up getting isolated and ends up getting threatened by uh, you know, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards has been doing for 40 years. So it puts Israel, our ally, in a much tougher spot. Um, it's really hard to say why the Democrats are so committed to this deal, but uh, it really defies all logic and all explanation.
but not just the Democrats, but it, it's that it's not being questioned by anybody else, whether it's the media or, yeah, or any, yeah. world media, I would say, or, or any any of the other world leaders. That's absolutely true. I mean, the other world leaders seem so distracted at the moment um, with what's happening in Ukraine. You would expect there would be some uh, voices of dissent from, let's say, Great Britain, but we're not hearing that. Within the United States itself, you know, there are uh, Republican members of Congress, Republican senators have spoken out. At the moment, obviously, they don't control those institutions. Um, you know, these midterms that are coming up are going to be crucial because if there is no Iran deal then and the uh, Republicans manage to take back control of the Congress and take back control of the Senate, they may be able to kill that deal. But um, it looks like within the next week or two, we may see a deal, in which case, you know, the Democrats will be able to push it through. Boy, oh boy, it's a deal with the devil. It's just a lunacy, if you ask me. But That's a perfect, excellent, that's a perfect uh, description of it. It really is a deal with the devil. Boy, oh boy. Uh, Kaveh, uh, we will continue talking about it. I'm so glad you were able to join me to kind of uh, flesh this one out, but we'll see where uh, if this one actually gets noticed in the next uh, day or two. Always a pleasure, Alex. Thank you so much. Thank you. That is uh, Kaveh Sharuz, um, you know, talking about the story that's really not being talked about, and it's got some really unbelievably big implications. But I think to, for me, it just speaks more about how can we say that we're standing with Ukraine when clearly we are dancing on their graves by doing business with all of these tyrants? Makes no sense. Alrighty, great to have you here on this Monday. So you thought gas was expensive? Wait till you see how much your bread and cereal are about to cost. And this has nothing to do with foodflation. This is a cost on top of all of that, because both Russia and Ukraine together make up 30% of the world's wheat and grain exports, uh, 20% of corn and legume exports. And when you look at Ukraine, um, you know, the agricultural activity represents 70% of their land. They've got 25% of the world's reserves of black oil in Ukraine. So they farm and they farm well. And with everything going on with you know, Russia bombing everything in sight, Ukrainian farmers obviously can't tend to their fields, which means they can't help harvest crops or get goods to market, let alone port, you know, get anything out to port to ship out to the Black Sea. So if they can't do any of that stuff or even plant crops, we're going to be in big trouble. Already, prices have surged by 30% and demand's not going to go down. And this conflict's not ending anytime soon. Let me bring in John Keogh to this conversation, founding and manager, a managing principal with Chantala. He's also a professor of practice at McGill University, where he teaches Center for the Convergence of Health and Economics. Good time to be a teacher there, John. Thank you, uh, Alex. <laughs> a lot of lessons to be learned. Um, you know, I, I knew that Ukraine was a big, um, you know, uh, provider of the breads and all the grains we eat. You know, it didn't really factor on me that this is not going to end anytime soon. And so what are we looking as far as market reaction? Well, we, we as you pointed out uh, in your opening, we do have a serious problem here. Um, Ukraine is, you know, the breadbasket of Europe and uh, quite a significant supplier of, of wheat and, and other grains. But just if we look at wheat alone between mm -hmm. Russia and Ukraine, as you mentioned, about 30% of global supply, that's actually about the same as uh, Canada and US combined. So okay. when you take that 30% away, uh, who's going to fulfill that? And the answer is it's going to be very difficult because it takes time to you know plant and planting mm -hmm. season is coming up now. And harvesting will be in, you know, 100 days after that. So while farmers in Canada can plant more right now, it's still a very uncertain uh, situation. There will be a lot of panic buying going on right now. Uh, and our, our strategic reserves in Canada cannot deal with uh, a significant boost in export demand. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the the issues right now, obviously, if it's winter there, they're not going to be growing, but they do have to prep the fields in the next couple of weeks, and then they have to plant them. But if none of that's going to happen, then you're going to have customers all over the world saying, okay, who am I going to buy it from? China is, as you know, one of the biggest customers, I think, of Ukraine uh, for those products, and they're obviously going to have to go somewhere else. I mean, are, are is the market now factoring, John, that they're not going to get anything out of uh, Russia or or Ukraine? Uh, yes, I believe so. I've been talking to a commodity trader over the last two days, and and as you mentioned, prices are up in the last week more than thirty uh, percent. I think it's thirty six, and then the last month forty eight percent. So the futures prices of uh, commodities like wheat are, mm-hmm. is just gone crazy. But if you add to all of this, the shipping uh, container companies have now completely stopped going to Russian ports and Ukrainian ports. So there's no chance of getting anything out there. So immediately 30% of global supply goes away, but it gets worse, Alex, because the other underlying issue here is that Russia is the largest supplier of fertilizers in the world. And mm. if you put, and, and number four is Belarus. Oh. You know, uh, yeah, China is number two, Canada is number three, Belarus is number four. So if you take Russia and Belarus together, and you take out that, uh, that factor of, of uh, fertilizers, then we could have food security issues uh, around the world. Right. Okay. And so, look, there are things we can do. Obviously, we can be a solution to this problem. Um, but again, it, it, it's a lot of moving parts that would have to move very, very quickly because, you know, we've got the farmers here. Do we have the landmass to to uh, fulfill supply to get crops planted? I mean, is there a way that that Canada can become a market to make up for these losses, or is it just too little, too late? Um, and is there are there other economies that would uh, step in and, and fill that void? Well, I think Canadian farmers will certainly be looking at uh, increasing their uh, their uh, planting this year, uh, but they can only scale up to a certain amount. You know, they, they, they have to rotate crops uh, every few years, every three or four years. So there will be flexibility to increase. I don't know what that percentage is. Is it 5% or 10%? Mm-hmm. But I know that in Australia, they're already starting to increase uh, the, their, their production there. But if you look at Canada's, uh, Canada's customers, top five customers versus Russia's top five, I had a quick look at it today. And there's only one customer in common, uh, one country in common between mm-hmm. the top five, and that's Bangladesh. So if Canada was to backfill from Russia, they would be getting you know, into newer clients or clients where they provide a low volume today. So for example, Turkey and uh, Egypt are the two largest clients for Russian wheat. Now, Turkey mm-hmm. is part of the, you know, the, the NATO alliance. So Turkey will, look, will probably look, look to Canada for increased supply. Uh, and, and so will uh, Egypt. Uh, other countries like uh, um, uh, Nigeria, Yemen, across the Middle East and North Africa they'll also most likely be coming into Canada looking for additional supply. So so there's an opportunity there for Canada to export to new countries or larger volumes to countries that were previously importing very low volumes from Canada. Yeah. And then, of course, the other side of it is it's going to cost more, um, you know, but but it's also going to mean uh, costs are going to go up because we keep getting hit with increased oil prices as countries try to deal with getting off of Russian oil. And so everything's going to get really expensive I think very, very soon. We haven't quite seen the hit yet. I think people think we've seen the hit. When do you factor that we're going to start seeing some of the shortages, you know, of this this conflict and where will we see them the most? 
Oh, we're going to start seeing them, you know, in, in the next week or so. We've already seen oil prices going up to historic uh, numbers now in the, over the last uh, number of days. And that's going to have a knock-on effect across all the indus- industries. And, you know, and this is on top of uh, re- trying to recover from COVID. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 it's just, unfortunately, Alex, it's just going to get worse from here. And, and I think the, the big risk for Canada saying that we're going to increase our production of, uh, of wheat is that, you know, last year alone, I think about 40% of grain output was lost due to, uh, to yeah. drought in Alberta and Saskatchewan. So we have some issues there with uh, drought risk. Um, and if that hits 40% of our outputs, that's that's quite significant. So I think we're going to start feeling it uh, right across the board. Everything we do, everything we eat, everything, you know, vehicles, uh, any any form of transportation, uh, everything is going to skyrocket. And I, I think the, the best forecasters uh, probably don't have a clue yet of how much that will cost in each individual household. Yeah, I mean, you, you've been talking about broken supply chains for a long time. You were kind of canary in the coal mine saying, hi, I got a problem. We got a problem. That was before the pandemic. Then the pandemic yeah. hit. Then we had real problems in supply chains. And now we have this conflict no one was really expecting, but probably should have seen coming. And so there's disruption after disruption after disruption. So are there emergency meetings going on behind the scenes to make sure that we don't have real food insecurity? And in your mind, can we now avoid food insecurity? And if we get it, what does that actually look like? I think there's lots of meetings going on behind the behind the scenes, uh, intergovernmental le- level, also in in Canada, U.S., and so on. I think decisions will have to be made, like in the early days of COVID, when countries like Vietnam got increased demand for rice, the country put in a a, a they actually stopped uh, all new orders, and they rationed existing orders. And I think uh, mm-hmm. countries like Canada, U.S., the larger suppliers of wheat and other commodities will also need to uh, really calibrate how, uh, how much they're shipping. And they may need to do something similar to Vietnam last year and say, you know what, we're not taking new orders. We'll fulfill mm. the current orders we have, but we'll give 70% or 60% of the order volume and we'll manage it until we, we can balance with the uncertainty that's uh, coming into the market. So, it's, so it's, the, it's a, we're, 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 we're going to see more protectionism in all countries, correct? You could call it protectionism or you could call it smart uh, playing because, you know, countries and, and uh, you know, governments and large industry players are now doing what consumers were doing uh, in the early days of, of COVID. They were hoarding. And that commodity trader I was speaking to a few days ago uh, mentioned to me that, you know, China, well, it's natural for China and countries with uh, massive uh, populations, they're buying as much as they can right across the board, whether it's oil uh, wheat, soy, and so on and so forth. So that's a natural reaction to that. Um, and I think it's not food protectionism per se, uh, but it is protecting the supply to make sure that there's equitable release of those commodities to countries that would not normally have the uh, yeah. resources to be able to pay more in, a sh- in the short term. Boy, oh boy, what an interesting time. I don't know if it's an, in- I don't know if interesting is the right word for it, but um scary interesting turbulent turbulent, volatile yeah for sure john very much appreciate you joining i guess we'll uh, stay tuned to see what uh, when we start actually seeing uh, the proof which will be in the pudding thanks john my pleasure thank you alex that is uh, john keogh who is an expert on all things supply chains boy oh boy does he know his stuff we've seen civilians targeted where they live 
where they work. The Russians have even said they're going to bombard more civil infrastructure, which President Zelensky likened today to deliberate murder. And so for the 1.7 million Ukrainians who've already crossed an international border, they're safe. But for those who've remained in these besieged cities, staying is unsafe. Leaving is unsafe, as we've seen civilians come under fire as they've tried to escape. The decision is fraught. It's terrible. So the United Nations confirming, you know, what we already know, and that is Vladimir Putin is a monster. Doesn't care who he kills. He'll do whatever he needs to to get what he wants. So he's refusing to create these corridors so that Ukrainians can escape uh, to safety. And uh, even, you know, he's just targeting those who want to flee. And President Zelensky over the weekend changed his tone a little bit, lashing out at the West and NATO for not doing enough to stop Putin. He's still calling for the no-fly zone. D uh, NATO, of course, saying, look, we can't do that. Interestingly, on the Sunday talk shows, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that NATO members have the go-ahead to send fighter jets to Ukraine. But so far, no NATO members have stepped in to uh, offer that up. Retired Major General David Fraser is president of Aegis Six Corporations and former Brigadier General of NATO Ground Forces in southern Afghanistan. He's always very generous with his time, so I don't like to ask too much for him to come on, but I do thank you when you do. Alice, good to be with you. All right. So, uh, you know, over the weekend, there was a lot of headlines that Poland might be willing to send these MiG-29s to Ukraine in exchange for some F-16s from the United States. That apparently didn't happen. Why is that? Well, for two reasons, I think, first of all, there is a limit to how much Putin is going to do allow <clears throat> Ukraine to accept uh, military aid before it becomes uh, an impairment to uh, Putin's objectives. And I think the MiG-29s were probably the line that he's going to say no to. But let's come back to that in a second. The other side where Putin's going to object to is that uh, Poland gives up a lesser aircraft in, re in return, they get either F-16s or F-15s, which is a better aircraft. And again, uh, Putin will see that as a, uh, uh, again, NATO enlargement, which he doesn't like and why, in fact, one reason why he's gone after Ukraine. It's so hard, and I'm sure I don't need to explain it to you, to stomach what we're seeing on, uh, you know, the televisions, knowing that babies and children and mothers and grandparents are getting killed, uh, for, for not by their fault. So a lot of people want to do more. We can't, of course, have NATO do anything because they don't want to have a third world war. But then why um, would the United Nations, could they then say, look, we won't call for that no-fly zone, let the United Nations do it? Can they do that? And short answer is no. United Nations have no forces. They have nothing other than what the member states can have. And, and they don't, the United Nations doesn't even have the command and control to manage that. But let's put it, even if the United Nations did, it would start a third world war. And so it wouldn't be 1.7 million refugees. It might be 17 million refugees trying to get out of a, a world conflict across Europe. So as distasteful, as unpleasant, as heart-wrenching as it is, we have to find a political solution to solve this problem inside of Ukraine and before it gets outside. How do you do that, though? I mean, look, he's, you know, you only need to look at a map of Ukraine. He is kind of choking off, almost like a snake wrapping itself around and just kind of slowly choking off. I mean, Kiev is kind of under relentless fire. The city's not entirely surrounded, but I mean, Putin is not going to stop. This is a country that's under permanent attack. All the cities are getting hit. So what is the solution other than watching this draw out for like week after week after week? 
So today the Ukrainians have yet again surprised Russia by slowing down, if not stopping, the, the momentum of their, their siege-like onslaught against mm-hmm. these cities and killing innocent civilians. Meanwhile, what we need to do is, as hard as it is to accept, ratchet down those sanctions, ratchet down as much as we can against the oligarchs and the Russian leadership to force uh, pain and suffering on Russian civilians, unfortunately, who then in turn can ask their political leadership, why are we doing this war when in fact it is achieving nothing but pain and suffering for everybody? That is going to have to be the Russians to tell their leader called Putin, stop. Yeah, assuming that the Russians are hearing about this, because as you know, they've been cut off from the world, uh, you know, including all the media that they they take in. However, um, you know, when you look at a situation uh, like this, um, it's hard to think that this could go on for months because he has already taken out so much of the infrastructure in uh, in Ukraine. The devastation is just, you know, obviously he's willing to turn this place into rubble. Um, but, but, you know, the Ukrainians still haven't given up, which is beyond a miracle. Um, but at some point uh, they're running out of food, they're running out of medicine. It's cold. If they get another nuclear plant, you could have a lack of power. I mean, there's only so long Ukraine can go. Uh, We think that, but let's look at history. The Ukrainians have suffered tremendously under, under the, the Nazis, under the Soviet bloc. And what turns from a conventional war? what we're seeing right now turns into an insurgency, which will be yeah. even more far, far more insidious to the Russians and to Putin. So this is, this is not going to stop if, if uh, Russia takes the country. It will continue long after, and it will be bloody and horrible for the Russians who have to occupy and have to deal with Ukrainian citizens who will not give up their country. Yeah. And to your point on the sanctions, and I agree, I mean, I wish we were going further with the sanctions. I mean, they really haven't targeted the inner circle of um, Vladimir Putin yet. And the other thing is, we haven't cut Russia off of its oil. So the world is still very much kind of saying the right things, but not doing all that they can do, which is halfway measures are not going to to help Ukraine at this point, which I think is, is the more frustrating thing is that we can't go all in on this because we rely on Russia for their oil. And those conversations are going on this week amongst the leaders. And, and we're actually seeing uh, longshoremen taking uh, action in their own hand. I read an article where they wouldn't unload a, a tanker because it was Russian oil and they wouldn't do this. And I think it might have been in the U.K. So mm-hmm. the leaders, the leaders are having to deal with this. Uh, Lavrov has been sanctioned. Putin himself has been sanctioned. I agree with you. We just got to squeeze the taps even more to turn off everything that's going into that country. The warmer it gets, um, is that the better for Ukraine? I mean, obviously, uh, they don't have to worry about the cold and that, but the spring is obviously uh, causing some problems for the Russian tanks because they can't get through the mud. I think they underestimated the timing of the year. Uh, the warmer this gets, who, who does that play the favor to? It, it favors the Ukrainians and the Russians, uh, let there be no doubt, the Russians calculated the weather. That's when they did do the uh, launch of, of the uh, operation when they did at the beginning of this month. Uh, to coincide with favorable weather, but every day is worse for them. Now they're going to be focused to stay on the roads, use the railways, uh, but not go into the into the fields, which actually favors the Ukrainian defenders.
Yeah. Uh, and as far as morale, though, um, it sounds like there's not a lot of great morale going on with the uh, Russian military. How long does Putin have to keep that kind of uh, stuff going? I mean, at some point when you're uh, leading a bunch of soldiers, if they're tuning out, um, that that's tough for any leader. Yeah, but let's let's not try to equate a Russian soldier to a Western soldier. These are these are conscripts. Uh, they're not told an awful lot. And fundamentally, they do as they bloody well are told. Otherwise, they mm -hmm. suffer the wrath of some officer. This is not a democratic organization, much like we see in our country or in the West. These are conscripts who do what they told, or they, as I say, they will get a boot. Literally, they'll get a boot up the ass to get, keep on going. And so uh, they... It'll be a while before that becomes an issue, if it ever does become one. Just quickly before I let you go, Dave, um, Zelensky, you know, he is such a, a power figure for his own people. Uh, does, uh, do the NATO allies now want him alive uh, to make sure that he stays a beacon of hope for, the, for his people? In a word, absolutely. This man has become what it means to be Ukrainian. He has become the flag. If you want to look at that, that yeah. game where you all know, capture the flag, he is the flag of Ukraine. He can't leave Kiev right now because if he leaves Kiev, that is the sign that, that you know, he's losing. But he is instilling uh, the, the, the spirit of Ukrainians to defend their country. He has actually got the world behind him, too. This man has galvanized what many NATO nations couldn't. And that is just getting everyone to come together to, to support and defend this country. That's not even NATO country. Defend it. He is U Ukraine when we think about it. He's a game changer. Person of the year, I'm going to guess. Nonetheless. All right. I appreciate your time, David, very much. Thank you. Alex, always a pleasure. Thank you. That's uh, retired Major General David Fraser. So. Uh, there you go. And apparently they're sending in teams to make sure that Mr. Zelensky is protected at all costs. Uh, he is going to be addressing the British Parliament tomorrow, so that is something to keep an eye out for. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point.